Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. My good people, greetings. What is going on? What is happening? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's feeling well, trying to beat the heat. And here we are, a new day, a new week, and a new month as I deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 148 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, August the 3rd, in the year of our Lord 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here over the next hour on this podcast is as follows The NHL and NBA restarts are in full effect and with some controversy. In the NBA, it's Zion Williamson. In the NHL, the speech by Matt Dumba, the Minnesota Wild defenseman to kick off the NHL postseason, as well as the 12 seeds in both the East and the West upsetting in their first matchup against the Chicago Blackhawks and the Edmonton Oilers, where the Blackhawks prevailed, as well as the Canadians beating the Penguins to jumpstart this NHL season. I'll get into all that later on, as well as the NFL players opting out left and right. Even players and coaches, head coaches that is, coming down with COVID. I tell you, it's going to be a complete mess. But as big as that news is, it still wouldn't be big enough if other particular players were to drop out of the 2020 season due to the coronavirus pandemic. And I'll get into that later on and certainly explain in deep detail, as well as why a bubble will never work for the NFL. I know a lot of discussion, people are saying, hey, they should start doing this now. It'd be a joke. And I'll explain why later on the podcast. Also, golf's first major this weekend in San Francisco. I'll get into that a little bit later on. Also, my hero and zero of the week. But to start us off here, I am not in a good mood. And what I mean by that is my sports mood. Otherwise, everything's fine. I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm healthy. My internals are good. Externals, etc. All is well. I have zero complaints when it comes to that. But as far as my sports mood is concerned, man. I've been sitting on this for probably the last 72 hours and even more so the last 24 hours. And you know where I'm going to go with this, Met fans. But I'm going to put that on hold because to get us going, and this is sad and just bad to say as one who does not like the team that plays its games on 161st and River Avenue, I owe the Yankees and the Yankee fans a huge apology. And by that, it's showing a little bit of accountability, a little growth on my part. And obviously the credibility that comes along with this podcast because if I always bash the Yankees and I always break out the pom-poms for the Mets, people won't come back to listen to what it is I have to say. They're going to be, oh, this guy's a homer, this guy doesn't care, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth or out of his rear end. You get the picture. Going back to my podcast, I must have been what? Mid-December when the Yankees signed Garrett Cole on the dotted line, nine years, $324 million. And I said then, that why even play the 2020 season? The Yankees will be the world champs 
of this year. And during my pseudo preview of the MLB season a couple weeks back, I did say that the Dodgers were going to beat the Yankees in a seven-game series to win the World Series. And of course, the Dodgers have their own demons that they need to slay, considering that they've made the postseason seven straight years by winning seven NL West crowns. And all they have to show for it are two World Series appearances and a bunch of deflating defeats at the hands of the Cardinals two times, the Mets, the Nationals last year. You could just go down the list. But the apology has to go to the fans and to the team because right now, despite the Cubs at 7-2, and two, the Dodgers at 7-3, and three, the Twins at 7-2 and two, where the Yankees always destroy. So we could put them to the side. No offense, my guy Jason out in Minnesota, my man head style. Let's hope that that changes this year if they do meet up in the postseason. But with that being said, the Yankees right now are by far the best team in baseball. Aaron Judge is hitting a home run every five seconds. He's hit home runs in five straight games, six in the last five, if you want to include the two he hit last night, including the game winner. The Yankees, despite them playing subpar talent, I know the Nationals are the defending champions, but they went in there and they stole that rubber game last Sunday in Washington. They had the two days off due to the Phillies and COVID, and they're actually making up their games this week where the Phillies will play two here in the Bronx before going to Philadelphia on Wednesday and Thursday. So they had those two days off where then they went to Baltimore and do what they always do is beat up the Orioles to the tune of 18 straight going back to last year. And think about that. They beat the Orioles 18 times in a row. And the Orioles just came off of a sweep against the Tampa Bay Rays. And a lot of people think the Rays are the second best team in the division where right now the Orioles are two games behind the Yankees at 5-3 and three where the Yankees are 7-1. and one. But are you going to take them seriously? Absolutely not. And then they played the Red Sox over the weekend which they just beat up to no end. And even yesterday it was tooth and nail back and forth until Judge hit the bomb of a home run there in the bottom of the eighth inning to propel the Yankees to a 9-7 victory and the 7-1 record that I mentioned and... The beat just keeps on going in the Bronx where right now the Yankees are just hell-bent on bringing a World Series title back to the Bronx for the first time since 2009. And you could check the receipts on the Cole episode where once they signed them, and he was the missing piece because we all know their starting rotation is their weakest link. Their bullpen, now they're going to get a role as Chapman back. And even though Tommy Canely looks like he may be on his way to Tommy John surgery, But the Yankees, if you want to call it the Achilles, is their starting rotation. And we all know bringing Cole into be the ace of this team is going to be the elixir to bring that World Series title back to New York and unfortunately to the Borough of the Bronx. Now we all know a season could twist and turn by any stretch with the injuries and coronavirus, so it's certainly unknown. Chances are right now the MVP of this 10-game season being Aaron Judge And Garrett Cole looks like he could be the Cy Young, although both of the awards would be a joke this year because it is 60 games. But if they do not win the World Series this year, and I get, if they do go to a seventh game and lose to the Dodgers, will it be disappointing? Will it be disheartening? Absolutely. But anything could happen in a seventh game. If the Yankees do not win a World Series this year, it will be an utter embarrassment. It would. And I get that the people right now probably listening, oh, thanks, Jay Reels. I appreciate it. Yeah, give us props or give the Yankee fans props. Or the other way would be, don't deliver that bad mojo my way. I know this is a reverse jinx of all reverse jinxes. But when you look at what they've done here so far, 
and how they played. And granted that they've beat up on some bad teams. But they look to be strong. And I haven't watched the Dodgers every five seconds. I haven't watched the Twins. Same for the Cubs. And those teams have gotten off to great starts. But Yankees right now, nobody can mess with their lineup. Top to bottom, they're the best lineup in baseball. And if Cole's going to be there every fifth day, and with that bullpen, how can they not win? So that's my point. So I got to stick by my World Series prediction. Dodgers in seven. But this is the Yankees year. And I should have known, even going back to that pseudo preview, that the team to beat this year was the Bronx Bombers. And for whatever the reason, I just couldn't bow down to the pinstripes to give them the World Series title this year, even though I declared that last December. So that's how to start off this show and then move forward here as we get through the baseball segment. And before I even get to the Mets, so to go from good to then the bad and the ugly, I'm going to save that for the back end of this MLB segment because with everything else that's going on, when you look at the Marlins only playing three games and their players up to, what was it, 17 players contracting coronavirus. You also had to worry about the Phillies there as one of their coaches and a clubhouse worker also contracted it, which affected the Yankee-Philly series, which obviously is going to be played here in the next four days. And then on Friday, you find out that multiple St. Louis Cardinals players where they had to cancel that weekend series in Milwaukee against the Brewers. And a lot of people, I understand, have come out and said, They got to pull the plug on the season where Rob Manfred, the commissioner is saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're not quitters, which may be a little bit strong, but the one thing you got to wonder about Manfred and making a comment like that, and we know that he's not made some bright comments in the past in reference to the World Series trophy being a piece of metal. So a little bit of the bravado and maybe even arrogance could come back to bite him because for two reasons. One, you wonder if the owners are in his ear to... Keep plugging away at the season. Granted, it's 10 days old, and here we are at a mini crisis. We get that the Marlins aren't going to go deep into this baseball season as far as the playoffs are concerned, and certainly to a World Series. And then the Cardinals, which are one of the major franchises in the sport, but they're one of the middling teams, although I always felt that the Cardinals could be dangerous considering that usually the Cardinals start off fast and they hang around for most of the season, and then next thing you know... You go into the last week of the season and they're either in the wild card mix or even more so around for the NL Central crown where they'll end up being in the postseason hosting a playoff series. But right now, with the owners and with everything that's happening in the climate, not only just in baseball, but of course this country, they're going to keep on plugging away until more teams and more players come down with this virus, which leads to my next thing. Considering this happened in the NL East, and you have to remember, this not only affects the NL East, but it also affects the AL East as well. Because we all know both leagues in their respective divisions, they're playing one another. So even though this happened to the Cardinals and Brewers in the NL Central, it's going to affect the AL Central to a certain degree. Because obviously they play one another. My thing here, and I'm sure right now Major League Baseball, they are holding their breath crossing their fingers and hoping that the vodka and tonics and the pasta primavera goes down much smoothly from here on out because all I need to hear is another team in the NL East come down with the virus. So let's just say for argument's sake, the Braves, 
considering the rumor was that in Atlanta was where a lot of the Miami Marlin players had contracted COVID before coming up to Philadelphia, and then we all know what happened last Sunday. So if the Braves come down with it, even the Mets or any other team in the NL East that's going to affect the balance of the schedule, same for the NL Central. I don't know if St. Louis, if they play today or tomorrow, I'd have to check the schedule, but as long as multiple teams in the same division aren't affected, baseball can move on. Now, God forbid, if it ever gets to somebody dying of this, then they have no choice but to pull the plug. They have to. But if multiple teams in each of the respective divisions come down with many cases of the coronavirus, then they're going to have no choice. They're going to have to bow down to coronavirus and say, you won. And as I've said for many times, many weeks, and it seems like many months, we all know that the virus is going to dictate whether or not these leagues, games, tournaments, etc. are going to be finished. Right now it's saying, yeah, you could start, but I still have the final say. And when it comes to baseball, we talked about bubbles and it wasn't going to work because now obviously it's too late for baseball to even get into that type of scenario. And I'll talk more about that with the NFL later on. But baseball, they could talk all they want about, oh, they're going to chug along. They're going to finish the season. They're going to do everything they can. And obviously, they're going to. There's too much money at stake. They've extended the postseason now for eight teams in each league. So you know that's more money that's going to be coming in. So for them to just throw their hands up and say, well, I guess we're going to have to conclude the season 10 days or 10 games into this 2020 season. There's no way they're going to do that. But for those scenarios that I mapped out and presented to you, more so with the teams in each of the divisions, if it's more than one team that's going to come down with this, especially just more than one or two cases, then baseball is going to be in for a long, hard fight to get to the end, not even just to the end of September, the regular season, just to the end of this month. So we'll certainly keep our eyes and monitor how this thing's going to affect. I believe the Marlins are going to play the Orioles tomorrow. I don't know if it's in Baltimore or in Miami. They're going to probably play a doubleheader at some point. You would think the doubleheader would be tomorrow in Miami, and then they'll have to go to Baltimore to play the other two games. So we'll see how that goes. And we all know that all the players, although from what I saw yesterday, I believe a lot of the Marlins players have taken back-to-back tests and they have been negative, but will that mean that all these guys are going to be cleared to play? Remains to be seen. We know that they have a big roster as it is with no minor leagues and with them expanding their major league roster, they're going to have to have probably 18-year-olds come in and play some of these games, which obviously is not going to make the product on the field look any better. And we get it, it's the Marlins and it's a team that's not expected to go into October or even deep into October for that matter, but still, it's not going to be a good look for Major League Baseball if you have 19-year-olds throwing meatballs over the plate and just getting lambasted by the scores of 10 to 1 or, you know, 14 to 3. The last thing they want to see are football scores. So that's what you got there with the coronavirus and baseball. And to me, I think they should just wait until more teams come down with it. Not to say that they should expect that or I'm hoping for that, but I agree with Manfred so far. But I'd be shaking, if I was him, I'm shaking in my boots. Because we're way too early in the game for this to happen and then wonder whether or not you're going to make it through the month. Now, maybe if this happened in September, if it wasn't as widespread as it was in Miami, 
or if it was sparse in certain places. I know the Cardinals, again, I don't know how many players. The last I checked were about four players. Now I got to worry about Joey Votto possibly having symptoms as he pulled himself out of the lineup. And I'm sure he's going to be quarantined and tested the whole nine yards. So this thing, I tell you, they are, forget about holding their breath and fingers crossed. I am sure they're probably on their hands and knees right now. Manfred and company praying to the baseball gods. But you're only 10 games in with 50 more to go. Good luck with that. All right, other news here with baseball. I mentioned some of the teams that gotten off the hot starts. And we'll see if that continues to hold. Whether it's the Cubs. And I thought the Cubs were going to have a little bit of a tricky start. Remember, no you Darvish or John Lester to start the season. Their pitching was going to be suspect. And even Chris Bryant's been out of the lineup. So the Cubs have certainly fared well. We talked about the Dodgers. And speaking of them, early in the week they had their rematch of the 2017 World Series in Houston. Two games. Now remember, they did play in 2018. So this isn't the first time they met since that World Series of three years ago. But the big news coming out of that was Joe Kelly being suspended eight games for throwing at Alex Bregman, which was a joke. And Kelly, we know, I don't know if you want to say he's a fake tough guy. I don't know. But he's had a history of this by hitting Tyler Austin when he was with the Yankees at one time because he slid in hard to second base. I get he was protecting his player, which is good on his part. But Kelly's a guy that does throw hard, is erratic. I guess now he's the poster boy for being a tough guy on the Dodgers where they didn't have another guy in their team who played in that World Series going back to 2017. So whether their name is Kenley Jansen or even Walker Bueller for that matter. Nobody threw at any of the Astros at that point. Uh, they had to have Joe Kelly come in on his high horse to do so. Eight games, a lot of people thought it was excessive. To me, because he was a second-time offender, and I believe the first time he got six games when he was a Red Sox with that incident the Yankee, with the Yankees. And now he gets eight games, which suits him well. And then the way he acted too, sticking his tongue out of the career after striking him out. And come on, that was a 3 0 pitch to Bregman and was up high. Now, it didn't really get close to his head, but we all know that that was a purpose pitch. Did the pitch get away from him? He was trying to throw a curveball. We all know that there's no way you could throw a 96 mile an hour curveball. So to me, that's just nonsense. So he gets his suspension. I believe he's going to appeal. Who knows what the latest is on that, but we're not going to see Joe Kelly for some time. And. Good riddance for him. Now, the MLB has approved the double headers to seven innings. I'm sure you saw that last week, and we got a good glimpse of that yesterday in Detroit where the Tigers and Reds played, and the Reds actually swept the double header, seven innings, both games, winning, I believe, 4 3 and 4 nothing. So, for those who think that that wasn't going to work, and this is a year where you have to experiment. You can have nine inning double header games, and imagine if those games go into extra innings. All right, I understand you're going to have the runner on second base at the top of the 10th, but you got to have these games in and out. There's no way that you could even fuss or argue about this for at least this year. Who knows what's going to happen next year? I doubt that's going to be the case. But for this year, you accept what it is, seven inning double headers, and you move on. And I'm sure if you're a Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim fan, as my guys Brian Murray and Kevin Christopher are, to see Shohei Otani... In his first outing last Sunday, not retire a batter. And then yesterday, not get out of the second inning to the point where he has discomfort in his arm, going for an MRI. His fastball didn't even top 90 in the second inning. Could it be another ACL tear in that same elbow that he got two years ago? 
Chances are that could be the case, but that's not a good look for a team that was hoping to be part of the AL West mix with Rendon and some of the one-year guys that they signed, well, the Julio Tehran and to have Otani just pitch on Sundays, that would be a big blow, not only, of course, to the starting rotation, but even to the lineup, because we all know Otani's a very good hitter. So we'll keep our eyes on that. But those are pretty much the big news and notes coming out of the week. And now, everybody, let's fasten your seatbelts. As one-time legendary Met broadcaster, may he rest in peace, Bob Murphy used to say, the main reason why I'm in an angry, ugly mood is because of the New York Mets. And only the Mets. Maybe the Knicks, and it's funny how both of these teams play in New York, maybe the Knicks are the only other fan base that could argue with the Met fan base that they're worse than the Mets. Now, I understand the Mets made it to the World Series five years ago, where the Knicks have not seen the playoffs in seven years. And if you're a Met fan, you have to just shake your head, pull your hair out of your head, and even laugh. Because the situation that's going on in City Field has become so comical that it's almost unfathomable. The Mets either invent or reinvent ways to lose games, as you've seen throughout the course of this week. And then yesterday was the coup de grace when Yoenis Cespedes, who was a no-show to the ballpark, no-call, no-show, that you had to get team officials to go to his hotel room, knock on the door, and when they get a chance to open the door, what happens? All of his belongings are gone. Left like a thief in the night. And I'm going to get to this situation in a second with Cespedes because I have my thoughts on this. But to me, this is going to start from the top and go down. And here we go, people. I'll try to be concise, but I got to let it all out. So, Met fans, get ready. Memo to Fred Wilpon and in particular Jeff Wilpon. Please, please sell this team. I know it's not going to happen before the end of this regular season. I get that. And if they even make it to October, I think about this. There's eight teams that can make it in the National League postseason. That's more than half of the teams in the league. And they're not even going to make it. That's embarrassing, just to start. So let me just put that out there. But for this organization and for this ownership to pussyfoot their way through last year with Steve Cohen and then now all the offers that have been pretty much thrown On top of his desk, whether it's Steve Cohen, part two, whether it's A-Rod, J-Lo, Travis Kelsey, Justin Bieber, Bozo the Clown, SpongeBob SquarePants, I don't care. Sell the team. Please, let them buy it. As long as I don't see Fred and Jeff Wilpon, again, in particular Jeff, this isn't about Fred Wilpon, as long as they're not a part of this, please, it will be the biggest exhale a Met fan could ever have. All I could say to them is emancipate us from your level of mediocrity and passion of non-existence and just sell the franchise. That's it. Case closed. Hopefully it'll be Steve Cohen because we all know he's a big Met fan. He's in his 60s. I'm sure he's chomping at the bit to get this organization because, and I don't know him from the next guy, but something tells me that he will care a lot more than the Wilpons and on top of that, operate it like an organization that plays in a big market. So that's number one. Second, the GM. Whomever buys this team, he has got to be the first to go. Brody Van Wagenen, I get that the Wilpons outside the box. Let's hire a former agent. He knows about contracts, players, etc. It has not worked. It's been a year and a half, whatever it is, and it has not worked. Goodbye, good riddance. And I understand whoever the new owner is, 
They're probably going to bring in a GM and a manager. And as far as Luis Rojas is concerned, it's a small sample size, 10 games. Can I nitpick on a couple of things? Absolutely, but you know what? It's not his fault. I would actually like for him to stay, and who knows? I understand Cohen's got a lot of bucks, and he may want to try to bring in a high-profile guy, which is fine by me. But at the same time, if he didn't fire Rojas or brought in the GM that was going to keep Rojas because of the analytics, because he doesn't cost much, etc., then I'd be fine with it. Because I would still need to see more as far as Rojas, how he manages the ball game. We understand his communication, his relationship with the players are A+. But we all know it's what happens between the white lines that's going to make him be who we hope that he could be. So back to Brody. This was an experiment that was going nowhere. And we could talk about the Diaz trade. That to me is easy pickings. I'll start there. Diaz has got to go. After what we saw in game two of the year, and then what we saw just a few days ago, there is no way that this man could be our closer for the rest of this year. Even the manager has been mum on his ninth inning status as far as being a closer concerned. So to me, how I translate that means that he is not the closer for this team. Now, thankfully, he does have Della Batantis. He has a guy, Justin Wilson. He has some pieces in the bullpen they could use. Dare I say, Jeru's familiar. But it's not as if they're bereft. Now, we all know the bullpen is still garbage. If you look at the game on Friday night against the Atlanta Braves, where they had an 8-2 lead, a 10-4 lead, and a 10-5 lead, and we know how that result ended. Or it was 10-6, excuse me, because they scored 5 in the bottom of the 8th, and they lost 11-10. Typical Mets, again, finding ways to lose. And Diaz, we all know that he came here. Forget about Robinson Cano. I understand people could get on Cano as far as the contract, his age, etc. But to me, the only way that we're going to get Diaz is if Cano came in the deal. So put him aside. Diaz has not gotten the job done. And to me, his confidence, I don't know where it is right now. I get that the other day, he said he hadn't pitched in five days, so he felt as if he didn't get enough work. That's why he was erratic the other night where he, what did he do? Give up a hit and walk the bases loaded. Whatever it was, he couldn't find a strike zone. All right, there is some truth to that. But to me, he is long gone as far as being the closer of this team. Because could you imagine if he happened to be in a big game and who knows how many big games the Mets are going to be at 3-7. and seven. But for argument's sake, a couple weeks down the road, or even worse, could you imagine? They still have six games against the Yankees. And oh, geez, I, I shudder at the thought of those games. Six games against the Yankees. And imagine in the first game of the series, and the Mets have a 4-2 lead, and he's got to come in and face Judge, Torres, and Stanton. And he's going to put Diaz in as the closer. Could you imagine he loses that game? Then Rojas should get fired, if that's the case. But even more so... That just goes to show you that I get that the Mets have no options, but I just gave you a couple. You have to use those guys before you use Diaz. That's all there is to it. So therefore, Diaz has to go. And I'm going to say this about Diaz. I got nothing against him, nothing personal. But considering he's only 26 years old and he has two more years before he goes to free agency. That's right. Next year and a year after. And with the CBA expiring after next year, and who knows if there's going to be baseball in 2022, I would say it's best to cut bait now. You may get 50 cents on a dollar for him, but the contract and the youth are your leverage. Hopefully, you can get something, anything in return because this has just been an out-and-out disaster. Dare I even say Jed Lowry? Should I even bring up his name? Now, granted, this guy wasn't going to come in and be Joe Morgan. I understand that. But two years, $20 million, and he only has eight plate appearances. They just transferred him from the 
whatever it was, 15-day IL to the 45-day IL. Was he hiding an injury before he became a Met? Did he injure himself in an accident during that offseason before spring training of last year? I mean, what happened to this guy? He had a career year in Oakland in 2018. What do you have? 23 homers, 99 RBIs. He comes to the Mets, and the guy has eight more plate appearances than I do, and I don't even play. And then on top of that, now that you transfer him to the IL, why don't you just cut bait altogether? Remember, his salary is prorated from whatever, game one to game 60. So even if you owe him $3 million, so what? Goodbye. Cut bait. Give that roster spot to somebody else. I understand you can say, oh, Jay Reels is not that easy. He's a veteran. He's a, The guy's not going to play. He's not going to be a factor of any sort. What makes you think that all of a sudden after 45 days, which will be what, five games of the rest of the season, that he's going to come back and do anything? The season's going to be long gone by then. So that falls at the feet of Brody also. I mean, why even bother? And then now with Cespedes, yesterday in the press conference, and I understand he has to tow the company line and he's not going to kill Cespedes and he's, but it's just indicative of how this franchise operates. Oh, he did say he was surprised, but but we're just going to move forward. We're just going to go ahead and march on for the rest of this 2020 season. Not only that, how did he not know or take the temperature of his player prior to this? And I'm going to get to Cespedes in a minute, so I'm not done with him. But for the organization to just kind of be out there, to not even know, especially with Cespedes, because he's going to be a free agent after this year. We understand the controversy surrounding him going into this regular season with everything that happened in the last couple of years with the surgeries, the wild boar, etc. You would think that they would be up close and personal when it comes to this guy. And all they've done is just throw their hands up to say, well, we're surprised like everybody else, but we're just going to move forward. What kind of leadership is that? And I understand you're not going to throw him out to the wolves or throw him away like yesterday's newspaper, but look what Cespedes just did to you guys. And let me get to that. Now, Cespedes will always have a place in my heart carrying us to that division title in 2015. The trade that we thought would never happen. Sandy Alderson was reluctant to do so. He was his third or fourth choice. And we know what happened that 2015 season. Even the first round against the Dodgers. Hitting two home runs. Cespedes was the toast of the town. We didn't even expect to even make it to the postseason. Let it go and get to the playoffs and even to a World Series. But after that Dodger series, he did nothing. Even in the sweep over the Cubs, zero. And in the World Series, my memory of Cespedes was booting that ball by Alcides Escobar in left field where it led to an inside the park home run. Which should have been the telltale sign for the Mets in that World Series right then and there. Not even the home run that Alex Gordon hit off of Jerus Familia, which ugh, right now I just shudder at the thought. But that play and then him being, if you remember, doubled off of first, where they had first and second in the bottom of the ninth inning in game four, where he got doubled off with Lucas Duda, I believe it was Duda, who hit that ball to the left side of the infield. He got caught. And then what was Cespedes thinking? Being nine miles off of first base, getting doubled off as the tying run there was just beyond me so those are the things I think about Cespedes and 16 he was hurt he came back hit those big home runs in San Francisco they went to the wild card game we know what happened Connor Gillespie etc since then it's been a nightmare it's been a disaster but the first thing I thought of when Cespedes said he's opting out due to COVID yesterday and I needed to hear more about the story but when they went to his hotel room knocked on the door or whatever they did barged in and his stuff was gone the first thing I thought was if the Mets were seven and three Would he have done that? You know what the answer to that is? Hell no! 
He just showed the front-runner player that he is. And again, I have a place in my heart for him going back to 2015. But that was an out-and-out disgrace on his part. You're not going to call the team. You're not even going to confront your teammates. He just gave up and said, that's it. I walk away. Good night. You could even keep the money. It doesn't bother me. I'll go back to my ranch. Hopefully, he'll get a call from a contending team. He'll go there. He'll wreck the league. He'll wreck his team in a good way. I'm not saying he's a, he's a bad teammate, but he'll go ahead and who knows, maybe make it to a postseason and then all we're going to do is just laugh because this is typical Mets. It's typical. But for Cespedes to do that, to leave his teammates high and dry, to not even contact the team, to not even get an idea as to maybe even thinking about opting out, but we know this was just a selfish act on his part. Because again, if the Mets were winning, if the Mets were in first place, do you think he would have done this? Absolutely not. And I, for that, I, I don't respect him. Because, and you wonder if many other players are going to do this over the course of the next few months if their teams fall out of it, knowing that if COVID continues to ravage Major League Baseball, will these guys opt out because, well, we're not going to win, we're not going to have a chance to get to the postseason, so therefore, goodbye. Now, this would be a great rallying cry for the Mets. And you would think after yesterday's news, with Cespedes gone, I'm sure they were shell-shocked because even though they had 10 hits in the game and had five walks, they couldn't even muster up one run. Again, typical Mets. And Cespedes, other than the home run he hit opening day, he did nothing. I mean, he batted 161, struck out 15 times in 31 plate appearances. But I, I just couldn't believe it. And he was a guy that I actually thought if the Mets were going to be successful, they were going to bank on him lengthening the lineup, being that presence. We understand that they have Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil and J.D. Davis has done well so far. And Alonso's just been lost. He's been in outer space somewhere. Who knows? He's just been god-awful. I don't know if it's a sophomore slump, whatever you want to call it, but he has just been pathetic. But going back to Cespedes, I, I was just appalled. I was angered. I was bitter. Obviously disappointed. And to me, it all boils down to the organization. It starts from the top. And who knows? Maybe if he had respect for his teammates or respect for the organization, it would have been different. But this, is, this goes to show you that he does not. Because he just said, heck with this, guys. I'm taking my bats, balls, and going back to my ranch. Peace and good luck. And now, now disgrace. And then the Mets, what did they do in the process? They acquired Billy Hamilton from the San Francisco Giants, the one-time Cincinnati Red, the speedster. And what is he going to do? The guy doesn't hit. His on-base percentage is 300. Yeah, he's fast and he can play the outfield, but he's going to be a fourth outfielder. And I understand Jake Marisnik now is on the aisle with a hamstring issue, which, you know, Marisnik isn't, is neither here nor there, but I just had enough. I've had enough with this team. They give me more agita than you won't believe than all my other sports teams combined. And we understand that there has to come a point where it's going to change. And to me, it's only going to change when the ownership leaves. And it's not to say that it's going to be the cure of all will of all ills. I hope that that's the case, but I, I, I've experienced enough of the Jeff Wilpon mojo that it's time to go. And hopefully they could do so come September 27th when the se- season ends, start bringing the perspective, new ownership involved, sell the team, goodbye, go off into the sunset and leave it for the next guy. And let's hope it's Steve Cohen because... As I said before, Met fan, he's worth $9 billion or whatever he is, Wall Street guy. Let's just hope he doesn't turn into a John Spanos, the old Islander owner, if you remember that from many years ago. And hopefully he'll be more Steve Ballmer than John Spanos. So, Met fans, that's what I got for you. And that is going to conclude this rant because, man, I don't even know what else to say. It just, it's mind-numbing. This team, oh, goodness. All right, let's uh, turn our attention to 
the NBA and the NHL before we get to the NFL and a couple other things. NBA right now, we're one weekend in. We know the bubble has been successful to date. Now, after the opening weekend, I mean, what could you gain from what you've seen over the weekend? Now, you've seen some competitive play. You look at the Lakers and Clippers there on Thursday night, which was tooth and nail. No Montrezl Harrell or Lou Williams, as we all know. But that was a matchup that a lot of people are hoping could be the Western Conference Final. The Bucks, right, they beat the Celtics there on Friday, but they lose to their Rockets there yesterday. So you can't really gauge from two games. And even the Lakers lose to the Raptors. I mean, the Raptors have been impressive coming out of the gate. As much as we're happy that basketball or any sports are back, uh, you can't really gauge what's going on. Yeah, players could look impressive. You can look at the kid, uh, Warren, who had 53 points there the other day who was really uh, T.J. Warren, who certainly lit up the scoreboard there on Friday night. But right, you, you just can't sit here and think that, oh yeah, this team is a favorite. Oh wow. I mean, We all know that once, let's just get the postseason started. Let's knock off all the bad teams and away we go. Like to me, why are the Wizards there? The Wizards, before losing to the Nets yesterday, who the Nets are their closest competition in the East, they were six games behind them. And they're only playing eight regular season games. And I get that they're giving them the opportunity, but now you can forget it because the Nets beat them. They're seven games back. They might as well just ship them home now. Get one other team out the bubble. Big deal. I understand they got to play in the schedule, et cetera, but it was just a joke why Washington was there. So to me, again, too early to tell. Yes, it's been exciting. It's been fun. I know Tatum had a big game yesterday against the Trailblazers, the ABC game. I know it's a little bit weird to see the background. I kind of like to hear the ambiance just from the Players on the bench, you can hear the sneakers squeaking on the court, which you can normally hear when there's crowds and people in attendance, but it does seem a little weird aesthetically at first, but at the same time, we know that this is what it is, and we just hope it's competitive basketball, and we just hope that it's basketball that we'll certainly look back on 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now and say, wow, despite the fact that COVID rocked the sports world, but that NBA Bubble and the postseason was one to remember. Now, still, we have, what, six games to get to that. I believe two weeks from this past Friday, the season will conclude, and then the postseason begins, I think, on August 17th. So we certainly got plenty of time between now and then. And speaking of teams and why are they there, now we know why the Pelicans are going to be there, and rightfully so with Zion, and we know that that was a major storyline going into the bubble is whether or not the Pelicans can make a run at the eighth seed, the Memphis Grizzlies, and them to possibly play the Lakers in the first round where you'll have storylines abound. Obviously, the trade with Anthony Davis playing his former team, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, we all know about Zion, etc. But why is it that there's a minutes restriction on this kid? I understand I'm not a GM, never have, never will be. I get that I'm not a part of an NBA front office. But this kid just turned 20 years old and was sitting for the last four and a half months. So it's not as if this guy has wear and tear. I get that he started off the season, what, he missed 36 games because of his knee. And all right, I totally get that. He's the future face of your franchise and possibly the future face of the NBA. But how he's not playing in the final minutes of these games because they want him to start these quarters but not finish them, they might as well just pack up and go home. Why even bother? To me, that is an out and out Calamity. How is it that this kid, who at 20 years old, as big and as strong as he is, is facing a minutes restriction when they had a 16-point lead in the fourth quarter and you didn't see him in the final 739 and end up losing 
to the Utah Jazz. If that isn't an indication right there that this kid needs to play in the final few minutes of the game, then why even have a team in New Orleans? Why? Uh, To me, that's just inexcusable. And even Zion came out and said that it's tough to watch. He wants to be out there with his teammates. He understands. He said all the right things. He's a rookie. He's not going to come out and rip the front office or the GM. But for David Griffin, who knows about star players, he was the GM in Cleveland when he won the title there four years ago, where he comes out, and this is his quote. He says that the routine to get loose at a certain time, he doesn't want him to sit on the sideline and have to wait because that's not conducive to him playing his best. How is that? What does that mean? The more he plays, he's not going to rest. And of course, you're going to take it. You'll get in his ear. Hey, how you feeling? How's the knee? How's this? And you want him to be honest with you because of course, the competitive nature and him, he's going to want to be out there. But if he is by any stretch of the imagination, either injured or feels like he's tired, winded, whatever, then hey, he's got to come out of the game, even for five minutes. But to, to handle this the way they have, and like I said, I'm not GM, we all, the whole deal, but still, the NBA wants to see this kid play. And I'm sure the NBA would love to see the chance and have the opportunity to see him play the Lakers in the first round. And how is it that tonight, I believe, 6.30 ESPN, who are the Pelicans going to play? The Memphis Grizzlies. So you mean to tell me if there's six minutes to go and the Pelicans are up by, let's say, eight. And now the lead is starting to dwindle. It's six. It's five. It's three. It's one. It's tied. Zion's going to be on the bench? Where John Morant may take over the game and show the world that he's, he's going to be the rookie of the year. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, buts about it. But let's say if John Morant takes over the game and wins the game, how's that going to look if you're the Pelicans? What do you say? What do you say to the media? More importantly, what do you say to your fan base? Oh, well, we got plenty of time. He's just getting started. Come on. jeez. Oh, right, well, that's what you got there if you're in New Orleans. And I'm sure you're frustrated beyond belief. But that was the, to me, that was the big takeaway of this weekend. And obviously with a huge, to me, it's a playoff game for them tonight. Because if they don't win tonight, they're not making it to the postseason. That's all there is to it. So that's what you got there with the NBA. And we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. Now, the NHL dropped their puck on the postseason on Saturday. And I'm sure to the delight of many hockey fans and sports fans or whomever you may be, to see the speech come out of Edmonton by Minnesota Wild defenseman Matt Dumba and let's start off, he had to be in the most impossible spot. Now, granted, the Hockey Diversity Alliance, they reached out to the NHL weeks ago to see if they could have somebody speak prior to the start of the playoffs. And Dumbo was the guy. Now, mind you, he plays for Minnesota. We know what happened in Minneapolis in May, George Floyd, etc. And he is not African-American. He is Filipino. He is of mixed race. But he was the guy, considering that that city was deeply affected, and that's not to discount any of the other cities where all the other, whether it's in Colorado, whether it's in Kentucky, Elijah McClain, Breonna Taylor, etc. But he was the guy that was going to be put to the forefront to pretty much say to the sports world, not even just to the NHL, to the sports world, that we got to end racism. And I understand people don't want to see that. I get that people look at that and say, ah, I just want to watch sports. Ah, who cares about that? Well, guess what? If you're going to have that tact, then you need to take that cold, hard look in the mirror and change some priorities there. Because guess what? It's 2020. This isn't 1975. This isn't 85, 95. It's a whole different world we live in. 
And things are going to change. And when you look at something like that on Saturday, and he got, believe it or not, I was actually a little bit surprised. I thought the reviews would be mixed. He was actually praised to the high heavens from some of the outlets that I'd seen, which was good for him. Because like I said, he had to be in an impossible spot. He knew he was nervous, nervous to the point where he knelt for the national anthem, but didn't kneel for the Canadian national anthem. Which I'm sure that sparked controversy amongst Americans. Like, oh, why didn't he kneel for the Canadian national anthem? And he even regretted not doing so. And let me pull up his quote here. He said his biggest regret was because there needs to be a light that's shed on what is happening in Canada, the, the oppression of the First Nations that have felt for hundreds of years, the Aboriginal families that have lived through it and seen it. And he said he was disappointed that he didn't kneel for them looking back on it. So you know what? Hey, I'm sure he was a bundle of nerves. Again, the weight of the world was not on his shoulders, but on his mind, heart, soul, etc. And he had a slight error in judgment. I mean, give the guy a break. So, for the fan out there that was looking at that, I'm sure that they were just upset and whatever. I mean, the guys got to get over it. You really do. And people say, oh, Jerry Rose, who are you to tell me what to do? No, that's fine. I'm not telling you what to do, but come on. This is the world we live in. What do you think? Is all peace, love, and harmony here that's going on in the States? And throughout this world, mind you, but more so in the United States? I mean, please. You guys have been under a rock if you don't think so. So that's why I start there. As far as the storylines... Well, the big takeaways, you look at the 12 seeds over the weekend. Edmonton jumps off to a one nothing lead. And the next thing you know, they scored four goals like within, seemed like, five seconds. Which propelled the Blackhawks to a 6-4 win on Saturday. And a lot of people, even Barry Melrose, I heard, the Blackhawks could be dangerous. Now, the Blackhawks have really been, on the last couple of years, under the radar after their cup runs in the early 2010s and teens. And even with the aging stars and the veterans that have won those cups, the Jonathan Tays of the world, the Duncan Keiths, the Patrick Canes, etc. A lot of people thought that this could be the right medicine for the Blackhawks, playing a young Edmonton team, upstart, need to make their move because they have all the young stars, as we all know. The Connor McDavid's and the Leon Drysaddles of the world, excuse me. So for Chicago to get off to that, 1-0 1-0 lead is big, because remember, I understand no home ice advantage, even though those games have been played in Edmonton, of course, in front of no fans, but it's only best of five. So if the Blackhawks are still, let's say, one of the next two games, and generally when you're an underdog, you always look at the odd number games, because those are the key games for the underdog to win. Because generally, in any series, if they win game one, puts all the pressure on the other team, on the favorite. Even if they lose game two, if they go out and win game three, puts the pressure on the Favorite as well for game four. And that goes in any sport. And then you have the Canadians beating the Penguins, another 12 beating a five, which I thought could possibly happen. And it's interesting because you look at the Canadians, they are not the upstart, the young talent like the Edmonton Oilers are. But it's in reverse because you have the Blackhawks as that 12 seed who have won those cups. And then you have the Penguins in the East who are the five seed who have obviously won cups in recent vintage. And now they're going up against a young upstart team and you kind of wonder whether or not the Canadians will have enough gumption, will have enough wherewithal to upset the Penguins and knock them out of the postseason, which would be a blow for the NHL, let's face it. Remember, they got swept by the Islanders in the first round last year, and you figure, ah, they've had a great run, whatever. This was a year that they started off slow, Crosby was hurt, even Malkin for for a time being, and then they were able to take off right up until COVID hit, and then they happened to be the five seed, not in the top four, and here they are in this qualifying round, and right now, they're facing a little bit of pressure. So that was, with me, the two takeaways. 
And then lastly, you got to see an old friend. Oh, two things, quick. You got to see an old friend in Henrik Lundqvist, the Ranger goalie, who played in game one. Their starter, Igor Shesterkin, was unfit to play, so that's a new catchphrase. So with the NHL, you always hear the upper body injury, the lower body injury, because they don't want to detail what part of the body is hurt. So now, and of course, with bringing COVID into the mix, unfit to play is the new nouveau catchphrase that uh, the NHL has adopted. So with Shesterkin not playing, they brought in Lundqvist. Who knows if Lundqvist is going to start today? They're actually going to play within the next hour as the Rangers and Hurricanes will meet up in a game two. And they'll play back-to-back. They'll play today and also tomorrow. Same for the Islanders. They'll play tomorrow and then on Wednesday. So you're going to have back-to-back playoff games as they try to get these series in and out within a matter of a week. So for the Ranger fan, hopefully Lundqvist will bring back some old magic to even up that series against the Hurricanes. We all know the long-time goalie, the mainstay there between the pipes for the Broadway Blue Shirts. So we'll see how he does. If he does get to play today, because with the injury status on Shesterkin, we don't know whether or not he's going to start a net. So that remains to be seen. And then I also get that, but that hit on Mark Schaeffele, the star center of the Winnipeg Jets by Matthew Kachuk. And we know Kachuk is a very chippy player, feisty. We've seen his battles with the Edmonton Oilers, Zach Cassian in particular, earlier this year. But that was not an intentional hit by any means. I've watched that several times and I thought to myself, where was it intentional? It's only because of the reputation of the player is the reason why he feels is that was a play that may warrant or they'll try to get the review to the NHL offices to maybe get him suspended. I don't think that's going to be the case because, again, there wasn't a penalty called on the play. Yes, uh, Sheffield went crumbling to the ice. Don't know his status for game two. And who knows? That could certainly ruin the chances of the Winnipeg Jets as far as going deep or even further into the postseason. But to me, that was by far not intentional. I I didn't see it. So that was the other news that came out over the weekend as far as the NHL is concerned. All right, let me get to the NFL here. I know I'm going to go a little bit over an hour, but I'll try to squeeze this in because now the NFL, there's a few things I got to get off my chest with this league. And we've seen a bunch of players opt out left and right. I'm not going to go through the whole list. But even when you have Doug Peterson, the coach of the Eagles, come down with it, and that's the one thing the NFL does not want. When a lot of these coaches, and I understand a lot of these assistants are young but you do have quite a few that are old and we know what this virus could do especially to those who have compromised immune systems now the players in particular Devin McCourty and he is 1000% correct on this he destroyed the NFL for attempting to move the deadline which I believe is Wednesday in which players can opt out of the season and that's an absolute joke they should just wait until the start of the Regular season, maybe not the actual start because the September 10th Texans Chiefs, that's the opening of the season, but maybe that Monday, how about Labor Day, would be the latest that you could actually opt out. Gives you enough time and they have every right to do so. There's no way that they could have to be forced to play because of this pandemic. But when you have so many other New England Patriots opt out. Well, the name is Patrick Chung or Dante Hightower, who are two big defensive mainstays on that team. You know, even the Jets. You lose Jamal Adams in a trade. He was dying to get out of here. He gets shipped to Seattle. And then your free agent prize of last year, other than Le'Veon Bell, was C.J. Mosley. Now he opts out. I'm sure if you're a Jet fan, and I guess Mets, Jets, and Knicks, you could pretty much throw them in a bowl, and they all have the same misery. 
But the NFL right now, they need to rescind that. They need to reevaluate that because as much as they want to feel like the season's going to go on, there's no preseason games, these players are coming in, and you have Matthew Stafford, who is now on the COVID pup list, player that uh, is unable to perform, as well as Gardner Minshew, and they also had to send some rookies on the Buffalo Bills last week with positive virus tests. The one thing that the league will definitely not come back from if the virus does rock the league, and it, I'm not going to say it should or deserves to, but considering what the other sports had to go through, come on, the NFL is going to make it out scot-free. But what's really going to hurt the NFL and why that despite all these players that are opting out now, and I'm sure there's more to come, is that until you get Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Aaron Rodgers, guys like that, Tom Brady, when the big-time quarterbacks on the big-time teams sit out, that's when you have a problem. To go back with what I said about Manfred and the MLB, the Pasta Primavera and the Pino Grigio will not go down smooth if any of those guys opt out. And you don't think that's going to be the case. Lamar Jackson's coming back after an MVP season. Patrick Mahomes just signed a $500 million contract and is now part owner of the Kansas City Royals. So how about that for a double dip? And until you get those players to walk out, the NFL will be fine. I mean, they could lose some big players. They could lose some big running backs, wide receivers, pass rushers, corners, whatever. And that would be a blow. Don't get me wrong. But until the big-time quarterback goes... The NFL will be fine. But then it's just a matter of whether or not they're going to even get to the season is another story. Which leads to the NFL bubble scenario. And I'm going to say this. If people are talking about the NFL having a bubble, how are they going to pull that off? Remember, people could say, oh, it's one game a week. It could stretch the schedule out, whatever. All right, we're going to start this game, start the league in September and then end it in April? Number one. Number two, you can have a hub where there's 16 football fields somewhere in the south, which you're not going to do right now because we know how the cases are just rising by the day in Florida, Texas, California, Arizona, etc. And you're not going to have these guys in a bubble that are going to stay four, four and a half months without families, without any contact with the outside world. There is no if, ands, buts, maybes possible that this is even could be thought of, let alone executed. So for people to think that it's going to be that easy, just put them in a bubble, it's going to be fine. There's no way. Whomever comes out and says that, whether it's the talking heads on ESPN or Fox Sports 1 or on Sports Talk Radio, whatever, if they think, if they have the scenario that's going to work, I want to hear it. And then I can laugh in their face after listening to it. Because there's no way that they could pull that off. There's no way. Impossible. And for what people say, Jerry Reels, come on, nothing is impossible, they could do it. All right, so let's just say for argument's sake, we'll put him in Texas. And let's say there were no coronavirus cases whatsoever. All right, you could use University of Texas. You could use Texas A&M Stadium. But then again, you got to worry about college football. So let's not forget that. You could use the Cowboys Stadium. You could use the Texan Stadium. All right, so let's say you could use eight fields. What are you going to do about the other eight teams? Where are you going to house these guys? You can't have them spread out all over Texas. They got to be in one area. And what are you going to do? You're going to have... Football game starting at midnight and then the next game four in the morning and the next game eight in the morning. I mean, there's no way. So please, I, I'm not even going to waste any more breath on that because that just it doesn't make sense at all. 
And I just got to throw this in the mix. It doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day. And who cares about this top 100 players list? I get it. But how Patrick Mahomes is not number one is beyond me. It just isn't. The guy won an MVP the year before, Lamar Jackson, and he's number one. And no offense to him, but does he belong in the top five or top three? Yes, but he's not the number one player. It's just based on what he did last year. And we all know his season ended with a gigantic thud. But Mahomes is the guy. MVP two years ago and a Super Bowl MVP. Case closed. That's the guy. So, and to think Mahomes was fourth. Russell Wilson and Aaron Donald were ahead of him. How Russell Wilson was ahead of him was beyond me. I understand he's an MVP candidate because if you take him off that team, forget it. Who are they? But you can say the same for Mahomes. You can say the same for a lot of the quarterbacks in the league. But anyway, I just thought that was a disgrace. And then Joey Bosa signs a big deal, 5 for 135, 102 guaranteed, which was more than what Miles Garrett received a few weeks ago from the Cleveland Browns. So kudos to him. I understand he's been a lot healthier the last couple of years than the first year or so in the league. Obviously, he's a game wrecker when healthy. Let's just hope for the Chargers' sake, moving into a new stadium, that he could be the franchise poster child for the new stadium and for the Chargers, considering that they don't have, well, you want to say Justin Herbert, maybe down the road, but he's the guy right now is the face of the Bolts since Phillip Rivers has left town and is in Indianapolis. So, yeah, that's what we got with the NFL people. We know Joe Burrow signed with Cincinnati, so you're going to see him on the center. For those who really care, Antonio Brown got suspended eight games for violating their personal conduct policy. So the big question is, does any team touch him? As of right now, I'd say no. And then to move over to golf real quick, I know Justin Thomas reclaimed his number one spot in the world yesterday with a win at the FedEx St. Jude Invitational. And you would think he'd be the favorite going into the PGA in San Francisco Harding Park, starting this Thursday, the first major of the year. Remember, there were no Masters. You didn't have a U.S. Open. That's going to be later on. In fact, I think the U.S. Open is canceled. No, I think they did move the U.S. Open to October. The only major they canceled was the British. So you're not going to see that this year. But the U.S. Open will be played. But you'll have PGA now. I believe in October is the U.S. Open. And in November, which is a little dicey, is the Masters. So we'll see how that unfolds this weekend. We figure the usual suspects will be there. Obviously, Tiger will be in the mix. You wonder Dustin Johnson. You're going to look at Bryson DeChambeau, who's been on a little bit of a streak here. And he actually was leading at the top of the leaderboard going into yesterday's final round, but did not come out victorious, as I stated with Justin Thomas. The Dustin Johnsons, I mean, Rory McIlroy, you know, those are the guys you're going to see pretty much at the top of the leaderboard. So golf's first full major. Looking forward to it. Should be fun. And obviously, we'll talk about that next week. And quickly with the college football, I know the ACC is now including Notre Dame. As far as the schedule this year, uh, I really neither here nor there about it. You know Notre Dame's an independent. So the ACC, you're going to see Clemson and Notre Dame, I'm sure, at some point. But the other big news was the SEC. They're going conference only. They're going to have 10 games. So you're not going to see that USC versus Alabama, which was supposed to take place in Dallas at uh, opening weekend on Labor Day. So you're only going to see the conference games. SEC is going to chug along. As we all know, they're impenetrable. And unless COVID is going to come out and say, ha, hold my beer. But with that being said, college football, which is inching closer to think, four weeks, the college football season begins. Let's see whether or not it's going to get kicked off on time, what teams are going to bow out, conferences, etc. We all know USC and what they've done and Ivy League's not going to play, and I tell you, it's just one big giant mess, and we'll certainly continue to keep our eyes on that. All right, let me get to my hero and zero of the week. 
My hero of the week, I'm going to give this to two-time Super Bowl winning coach, and I hope he's recovering nicely from what I saw. That's the case, and that's Tom Coughlin. He was in a bike accident, not a motorcycle, regular bike accident. Good for him, 74 years of age at the end of this month, out there getting some exercise in the Jacksonville heat, which could be a little bit uh, spotty considering that the last thing you want to do is get heat stroke, but God bless him for wanting to push the pedals out there and get some exercise, but he suffered some fractured ribs, even a punctured lung in this bike accident. He's recovering nicely. He's doing well. I've never been the biggest fan of Tom Coughlin in those days at Jacksonville when they played against the Steelers, but considering that he's doing okay, he's doing well, and hopefully this is just a minor spill and that he recovers 100% and gets back on that bike again. So Tom Coughlin, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is the Iowa Hawkeyes, in particular the college football team. Now we have to hear allegations where African-Americans were bullied and demeaned and recommended that Coach Ferentz and the AD Gary Barter were to take steps to improve the culture by the players. I understand that there are a lot of coaches that use certain motivational tactics, and we talked about that last month with one of those Division II teams that I got on their case as far as being my zero of the week. But there were three members of the coaching staff uh, on field or even, I think, the strength and conditioning program abusing their power, verbally abusing the players, bullying the players, probably coercing them to do things that they shouldn't do or put them in scenarios where it's going to motivate them, where it had to be fueled by race. Uh, Just despicable. Uh, What could you say? Uh, These allegations. And Ferenc, we all know, is a very good college coach. Comes from the Belichick tree. And this is something that he's going to have to answer to. And with Iowa and college football on the horizon, something that they need to iron out quick, fast, and hurry. But with all these allegations, whether they're true or not, certainly in this day and age, does not bode well and does not have a good optic. So Iowa, my friends, the Hawkeyes, that is, are my zero of the week. All right, my good people, I hope you enjoyed that. A lot of fire in this podcast. And boy, I was ready to burst out of my chest, especially after the news with the Mets yesterday. So I hope you enjoyed it. If for those who are listening for the very first time, if you like what you heard, if you thought it was a little zany, crazy, goofy, passionate, whatever, and for those who haven't got a chance to do so, whether you listen to me once, twice, or 148 times, I implore you to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Again, it is the J Reels podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, or wherever you get your podcasts. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. And in turn, generate interest for those outside who aren't familiar with the podcast, whether it's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, sports writer, studio host, blogger, whomever it may be. As I look to produce podcasts twice a week, obviously my State of the Union on sports on Monday and then usually on Thursday where I have my special guest. So if you haven't done so, please, I would really, truly, greatly appreciate it. I do appreciate you taking the time out to download and listen to what it is I have to say. And as you've heard, I talk about all sports. It's not just fantasy football. It's not just basketball. It's not just baseball. It's everything. I cover it all, people. So I hope that brings you back just on that alone. And you can follow me on any of my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram at JReels or the JReels podcast, which is strictly sports. On Twitter, JReels1, just the number on Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, and you could send me an email or a question, comment, criticism, or praise on any of my aforementioned social media accounts or the old-fashioned way at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. If you couldn't tell by listening over the last hour how passionate I am about sports and my 
love and just undying support for anything that happens on the diamond, on the ice, on the gridiron, on the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. Each and every week coming from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. And keep on coming back for more because I am not going anywhere. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.